We're in chapter 6 of the book of uh, Exodus, and we're about to, so I wanted to do something here that um, this may or may not be important or helpful to you, but I want to I take some time to do this. We're about to begin the, the plagues, uh, as we used to call them, that God levels against Egypt, against the Pharaoh, against the Egyptian civilization to force them to free the, the Israel, uh, children of Israel and let them go. I think it is, it is very important. As a matter of fact, it is usually not taught this way in a typical church or in sermon or in a Sunday school class or so. But I think it's really important for us to understand this because God says to Moses in chapter 6, which is where we, 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 will, we will start, by my mighty hand, he will let you go. By my mighty hand, he will drive you out of his country. Um, this is God, Yahweh, the one true and only God, making war on the Egyptian worldview. God absolutely dismantles the entire Egyptian way of looking at things. And he says, as we will look at this again, I want them to understand who I am. I want them to understand that I am Yahweh. And so what I thought I would do, and if you're really interested in this, in, in the book that I wrote there on the Covenant People, the chapter on Exodus, I have a number of pages on this that gives a lot more detail to it, but that's only if you're interested in digging into it more. This is really important. In many ways, this is probably the most important point to get, and then the role of Pharaoh in this. The chief ethic of the Egyptian worldview is ma'at. All we're doing is we're bringing an Egyptian word, hieroglyphic, into English. What does that mean? It's a very hard word to, to, to define. It's just one, one particular word. So I've fleshed it out this way. The chief ethic was ma'at. To the Egyptians, the world was a world of order, of stability, of harmony, and of balance. Their world was a world of order. And part of the reason for that was the Nile River. Because the Nile River, and you probably know this, but the Nile River is one of the few rivers on earth that rises in the south and flows toward the north. Most rivers don't, don't do that. But at the same time, the, the Nile River is one of those rivers, it's massive, it's huge, but it's very predictable. You can predict, you will know when it's going to flood. You will know when it's going to rise around Lake Victoria, kind of in the central part of Africa, just head north, and its movement, everything about it is very predictable. And so for that reason, Pharaoh would send out his, his henchmen throughout the Nile Valley to precisely determine, here's when it's starting to flood. And that means in four days it'll be here, in ten days it'll be here, and in two weeks it'll be on the delta. And so they would plan that, they would organize everything around that, they're planting, they're harvesting, because the Nile, because of the nature of the river, it dumps an enormous amount of rich soil in the delta region, and actually all along the Nile, because it's at floods. And so that's rich. That's why the, the, Egypt was the breadbasket of the world in the ancient world. If you go to the Roman Empire period, why did Julius Caesar and the Roman Empire want Egypt? Because it would provide so much food. Egypt, when, when, when they annexed Egypt, the Roman Empire that is, that was the breadbasket of the empire. So I'm saying all that because this, this is their world. And Pharaoh's job, who was an incarnate god, 
His job was to maintain this. His primary job as an incarnate God was to maintain, and this is how the hieroglyphic um, material that you see on the walls of their tombs and the walls of their temples talks about Pharaoh all the time. The God maintains my ox. And that was his job. And the Nile River was a celestial stream. It was actually the bloodstream of one of their gods, the god Osiris, the god Horus. There's so many gods in the Egyptian pantheon. We're all tied to the Nile River. And again, that's the key to the order and stability of this civilization. And then, and this develops, the Egyptian, the development of their, their polytheistic system is over thousands of years. But by the time of the New Kingdom, remember that's where we are, you know, the Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, New Kingdom, we're in the New Kingdom now. The time of the New Kingdom, the chief god is Amun-Ra. That's A-M, that doesn't look like an O, but it is an O. A-M-O-N-Ra, Amun-Ra. It's actually two of the ancient gods put together in one, but Amun-Ra, he's the sun god. And they pictured Amun-Ra as sitting on a chariot as he pulled the sun across the sky every day. And Egypt is a very, other than along the Nile, it doesn't rain very much. It's a very arid climate. So you get outside the Nile River Valley, you're in desert. But along the Nile, it's rich, rich land because of the flooding of the, of the river. And so the, the sun, very rarely do you have a day in Egypt where the sun isn't shining, for the most part. And so the sun god is just, he's the most important god. He's the chief of the pantheon, and he's the sustainer of life. There are hymns, we have lots and lots of these, hymns that were written to Amun-Ra that just celebrate his sovereignty and his majesty and his power as he sustains the life of Egypt. It's almost like you're reading one of the Psalms, (laughs) seriously, because he was so important to them. So if you just look at those four comments that uh, summarize the Egyptian worldview, what's God doing? He is making war on this worldview. When he causes darkness on the ninth plague to come upon the earth, what's he doing? I am greater than Amun-Ra. When he takes the firstborn of Pharaoh in the tenth plague, what's he saying? I am greater than Pharaoh. And by all of the other plagues, what is God doing? He's creating chaos and disorder in Egypt, isn't he? Whether it's the insects, whether it's the frogs, whatever it is, God is causing absolute chaos in a civilization which depends on order, stability, predictability, balance, God undid it all. And it gets to the point at the end of the 10th plague, as you know, where Pharaoh just says, get out of here. Because he, that is God, has destroyed every linchpin of the Egyptian worldview. And I'll, I'll, as we go through this, I'll try to emphasize some of that. But you, what you really see here and you see it in a number of places in the scriptures. You see it with in Daniel and with Nebuchadnezzar and how through the visions and dreams, Daniel is the agent God is using to undo the Babylonian worldview, to show that it's suspect, it doesn't work, and it's the one true only God that Daniel represents here, Moses and Aaron represent, and so on. So I thought I'd take a couple of minutes. Obviously, this won't be here next time because we, we don't it might be nice to have the homestead people I wonder what all that means, that's interesting <laughs> we can't do that, we don't want to in any way offend our host but so if this is of interest to you you might want to jot down because I probably won't put this up again
Uh, yeah. God did this. Uh, uh, well, I'm going to ask you uh, why God did, it, did this. I, I think it's because uh, um, Moses had to go into the river. They were going to try to kill him. That's correct. His mother. So, that's how his mother saved him. Mm-hmm. That was maybe one reason. Another reason he wanted to convince the Pharaoh to let his people go. That's right. But uh, the Pharaoh was also very, he was very, he was hard-hearted. I know God had caused that. But yes, we'll read that. Mm-hmm. He, he was, uh, well, how do you, how do you, how would you say why God did this? Well, <clears throat> that's what I'm, I'm trying to, to lay here as a foundation, Woody, there is more to this than just the liberation of the children of Israel from Egypt. That is the primary goal. I mean, God keeps saying it. They will let you go. But he is also, he's got, let's put it this way, he's got two audiences. When God does this, when God sends these plagues on Egypt, there are two audiences watching this. Audience number one, the children of Israel. They will see demonstrated in incredibly majestic and powerful ways the evidence that their God is the one true and only God. And that was very important for them uh, from God's perspective. And so when you read the rest of the Old Testament, actually even in the New Testament sometimes referred that way, but in the Old Testament, God keeps saying to them, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who brought you out of Egypt. You look at the prophets. You look at the major and minor prophets. You look at the uh, the kings in First and Second Kings or First uh, Second Chronicles. Uh, there's that constant reference to "I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt." And so it, these are object lessons that are to demonstrate to Israel, the children of Israel, this God of ours who has revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and and, and Jacob, who has called Moses to be our deliverer, is the one true and only God. And we're seeing his power. Because remember, they had lived in Egypt for 430 years. They knew the Egyptian worldview. They're in Goshen, and the capital is Memphis. It's not that very far, which is one of the reasons why Moses and Aaron didn't have any trouble getting to the court. So I'm saying that because they understood the Egyptian worldview. They, They didn't buy into it, but they understood it. And they just saw God absolutely dismantle it. And the other audience for the plagues are the Egyptians. God says this, I will prove to them, I am Yahweh. I will prove that to them. So to me, when you put all that together, it's more than just a bunch of Sunday school stories that you put on a final graph board, which is what I used to, when I had in Sunday school, when the earth's crust was hardening. You don't even know what a flannel graph is, but it was just an interesting way to teach. But it's far more than that. This is to demonstrate to us nearly 3,500 years later that God is the all-powerful, almighty, one true and only God who creates everything, who superintends everything, and who's sovereign. And when he, that's right, when he makes a decision to do something, his power will be leveraged to accomplish that through his glory. And so this is why this, this, what we're about to study is one of the central passages in the entire word of God that just keeps being referred to from here on out. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. And it, it, it demonstrating that kind of power is what they needed to see and understand 
what the Egyptians needed to see and understand, and quite frankly, what you and I need to understand. This is our God. And the kinds of things that are in these plagues are the kinds of things you see in Revelation 6 through 18. The same kind of power. Are you ready to start? Any other? Do you have any questions about this? I mean, it isn't really hard to understand it, the words, but I'm trying to capture for you this polytheistic, integrated worldview of the Egyptians, filled with gods, but it's all based on the order, stability, and balance of their world. That was very important to them. And for them, life, let me rephrase that, for them, death was just a continuation of life. You could almost argue that the ancient Egyptian civilization, they were obsessed with death in the sense of preparing for it. Now, in the old kingdom, it was very elaborate, and you know the, that's when the pyramids were built. That, that was so expensive and so difficult to do. As you get into the middle kingdom, the new kingdom, they're not building these pyramids anymore, but they're still burying with the elaborate ritual and preparing for the afterlife because the afterlife to them was just an extension of this life. And you are headed on a journey, and that journey is to get to the Hall of Truth, where the god Osiris will weigh your good deeds in a balance. And if you don't measure up, there is a huge beast right beside the balance going to devour your soul. Otherwise, you go into paradise with Osiris and so on. Jim, some of, the, some of the people today, a lot of people in churches and out of churches, believe that the good outweighs the bad, then... You know, well, absolutely. Like, you know, yeah. Well, yeah. you make it in. Man. That's and right. That's what it's all about. Well, yeah. and that's the, what the Egyptians are doing there in the Hall of Truth, they called it, and all that stuff, it's very similar to just about any, any worldview you can figure out today, <laughs> except biblical Christianity. It says there's no balance. You have either put your faith in Christ or you haven't because Christ paid it all. You cannot merit and earn, work your way to God. That's not possible. All right. Okay. Uh, yeah, Mark. You know, in a way, the Egyptian system was kind of a perfection of uh, self-dependent on this on on human order and setting God away from the picture completely. Because the way you like it, you know, uh, the transition into death and the perfection of life itself and the good and the evil and all that kind of stuff, it is going to be going against God Himself. If God is in order, in control, or humans can be in control. And the destruction of that system was very crucial for God's plan in the future to show that he is the only sovereign and no human can survive on his own. And if there is order and stability and harmony and balance, it's due to what he has done. I mean, because our world, we wouldn't put it this way, but our world in terms of the science of our world, what keeps it, is basically rooted in order and stability and predictability. When you get on an airplane, it's based on the science of how you overcome the resistance of gravity, but also how you can get back down on Earth. That's based on how God's done it. When we fire a rocket into space to hit some, like Pluto, I don't know if you read about that a couple of years ago, the odds of them hitting that were so astronomical but they were able to figure it out mathematically, and they nailed it. Do you remember that great, that was that fantastic exhibition to Pluto where they photographed Pluto? That, that was one of the most amazing things. And as one man said, the reason they could do that is because of the predictability and mathematical certainty of the world God created. 
That wasn't happenstance. That wasn't chance. That wasn't by accident. That was meticulous mathematical precision to shoot a rocket that's going to be traveling something like five and a half billion miles and hit it. That's, a, that's pretty amazing. I just wanted to ask Fred if he was going to email the image of the board to us. Yes, he would because I just sent it to him. I will. Isn't it amazing what we can do with technology? Before he goes away with his wife. <laughs> I'll do it. Uh, I have to do it rather quickly, so I will. <laughs> if you don't do it before you leave town, they will hunt you down, Fred. <laughs> they will hire private detectives to hunt you down. Chapter 6, verse 1. Remember what has happened in chapter 5. They showed up to Pharaoh's court, let my people go, and he laughed at them and mocked them and made, made the oppression of the Israelite slaves even worse. And Moses then laments and said, wait a minute, God, is this why you brought me here? Is this why you sent me? So verse, verse 1. Then... The Lord said to Moses, as you know, Lord, there is Yahweh. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. Now, verse 2, and then verse 6, and then in verse 8, what I want you to see in my Bible, I just connected all these. You'll see in verse 2, I am the Lord. Look in verse 6, I am the Lord. Look in verse 7, I am the Lord. Look at verse 8, I am the Lord. That's four times, plus you have another Lord in verse 3, end of verse 3. Remember, that's Yahweh. That's the self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am of the universe. So what God is saying here, and he says it four times, because that takes, bear with me, that takes Moses back to Exodus 3. Verse 14, it takes him back to the burning bush. When God spoke to him and said, I am that I am is sending you to Egypt to liberate the children of Israel. So he's reminding him, that is Moses, of who he is. And it takes him back to Genesis 3. Do you need reminders in your life as who God is? Yes. Yes, you do. We all need reminders. That's one, it's not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons you go to church. That's one of the reasons you fellowship with believers. That's one of the reasons you're careful with what you read. That's one of the reasons you're careful what you listen to. That's one of the reasons, because what you need is constant reminders as to who God is. And who we aren't. And who we aren't. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's all God's doing. So what does he do? He said to Moses, verse 2, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. That's God Almighty. God Almighty is El Shaddai. Though, I mean, not every, I think most people, there's songs about that and everything. But that's God Almighty is El Shaddai. But by my name, the Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites and the Egyptian enslaving, and I remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh. Now, I want you to notice from verse 6 down through verse uh, 8, 
The number of times I will, I'll give you the count, it's seven times. But notice how many times. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Verse 8, And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Now Moses needed to be reminded of this. Moses needed to be reminded that he is going to be the instrument that God is going to use to deliver them from Egypt. But who is really doing it? Seven, seven times. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. So that Mo, And this is something that every prophet and every king and every leader of Israel had to be constantly reminded of this. You are my instruments, but I'm doing it. Elijah, you, I will do immensely powerful things through you and your successor, Elisha, but I'm doing it. David, I will do immensely significant things in building your empire in the eastern Mediterranean, but I am going to do it through you. So this is just a, it's like a refresher course in a very short paragraph that Moses needed to hear this because what did we read in verse 22 and 23? He's, de he's depressed. He's lamenting good night. Things aren't going very well. It, you're making it worse, Lord. They, they, they now have to make the bricks without any straw. Lord, how can, how's that deliverance? And so God is reminding him, no, Moses, relax. Take a deep breath. Get a cup of Starbucks coffee and let me review with you who I am and what I'm about to do. So when you're having a bad day, and we all have them, just go back and read a passage like this. So Reminding yourself, who is my God? Jim. So this interaction between Moses and God, did it, was it audible? Was it just kind of mental? Exodus, you, Exodus 34 speaks of Moses, and God spoke to Moses face to face as a friend does to a friend. So I see no reason why this is not an audible communication between God and Moses. I think God is standing in front of him. I mean, that no man has seen God and lived. But it is an audible conversation. There have been a few individuals in biblical history that have had that privilege. But I love that path. I think it's in, I think it's in Exodus 34 where it says of God, God spoke to Moses face to face as a friend speaks with a friend. So I see no reason why we shouldn't understand that that is referring to this and all the other times. So Moses was lamenting audibly. He is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Crying out. Absolutely. And so God responds as he did at the burning bush in Exodus 3. He responds again. I see no reason to, for, in any way to understand this an audible conversation between God and Moses. <clears throat> so Moses went up to Pharaoh and he was expecting Pharaoh to say, okay, let me help you pack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly, which is obviously not going to happen here. 
All right, so uh, I want to go through this next paragraph, but just look at verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites. So what he just had a conversation with God, he goes and tells the, the clan leaders and the tribal leaders. And they said, great, let's go. That's not what my Bible says. But they did not listen to him because of the discouragement and harsh labor. Now, don't be too hard on these folks. You can understand that. What evidence did they have of what Moses just said? The evidence they have is discouragement, and they're working twice as hard to produce the same amount of bricks as they were before Moses showed up. I mean, if I were an Israelite tribal leader, clan leader, I'd say, I'm not sure this guy Moses really has our best interests at heart. Things aren't any better. Things are worse. That's a human response, but it's a natural response, an understandable response. And the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. Okay? Re-emphasizing, reiterating the command. This is what you're supposed to do. Now Moses, back to the excuses why maybe you made a mistake, God. If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? That's reasonable. And then he adds, since I speak with faltering lips, literally uncircumcised lips. That's literally what it is in the Hebrew. <coughs> what does that mean? That's been, that's been a problem. It's been problematic in trying to understand what he's saying. One, he is definitely offering an excuse. That's, that's what he's really doing. Did he have a speech impediment? Most expositors don't think that's, that's the issue. It's, for him, it's an uncertain, I'm not articulate, I don't have the confidence to stand before Pharaoh. I really don't, Lord. Maybe it's a speech impediment, but most expositors don't think that's the case. He's giving an excuse He's trying to take what he had said earlier. God, are you sure you have the right man here? I mean, the people of this aren't listening to me. Why would Pharaoh listen to me? Send somebody else. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Now we're gonna some I'm not gonna read all of this. This is a genealogy. We've got to ask why is this here? But it's just, it, there's no response from God. There's no chastising of, of Moses by God. It's just back to the five excuses. Remember the solution was, Aaron's coming, he's going to be your helper. Aaron's coming, Aaron, he'll be your helper. That's all it is. And so there's no chastisement, there's no disagreement, there's no verbal battle. Now Moses and Aaron, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh the king, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. This is what I think probably happened. Moses and Aaron, after Moses said, Moses and Aaron are there, and God says, okay, guys, let's go over the plan one more time. There's no, to, to, to Moses slapping him on the face, hitting him over the head with a two-by-four, None of that. It just says, Moses, here's the plan. 
and you're the man. I'm giving you Aaron, but you're the man. Then, for some reason, we have this genealogy. From verse 14 of chapter 6 through verse 25, we have this genealogy. It's a genealogy of the Levites. And Moses and Aaron are Levites. So why is it here? It is to demonstrate the pedigree and authenticity of Moses. He is God's man. He is a Levite. Aaron is a Levite. And that's why God chose him. It just shows his pedigree. You know, you, you know what I mean by pedigree, don't you? So it's his pedigree. He is a genuine Levite, descended Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Levi. And then it breaks into three parts of Kohathite. And of the Kohathites comes Amram. And Amram gives birth to Moses, to Jochebed, his wife. It's just showing. He is an authentic Levite. And Aaron is an authentic Levite to do what God is asking him to do. And then the text concludes, verse 26. It was this Moses and Aaron to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, by bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. The same Moses and Aaron. It's just authenticate. Because for you and me, it's almost so. But for the Jews, a pedigree, authenticity is really important. They are genuine Levites. Because remember the role of the Levites, in addition to overseeing, because there were three Levitical families, but the, the families together, there was to offer the sacrifices, to minister the sacrificial system, but also to teach the people the law. That was their primary job. Moses and Aaron are part of that. No better representatives of Yahweh than Levites. There's no better representative. Because they... Know the law. They are to teach the law. They are to live the law. And since it had been given by God to Moses, to the children of Israel, to verify once again and validate is important for the Jews to read this. doesn't matter to you. Most of us, I think that's generally true, more so in the United States and other parts of the world, our lineage doesn't mean that much to us. You know, it really doesn't. I mean, you know, I've been on Ancestry.com, and I wanted to find out about my family, my dad's family particularly, and all that stuff. But, you know, for the most part, it's kind of like a hobby. It doesn't really matter. But in England today, it still matters. It's still kind of important to people. Germany, it's still kind of important to some people. But we're, we're democratized. We, we believe in equality. We don't think about those kinds of things. And that's not, I'm not saying that's bad. It's just a way. How about the Jews today? Do they, are they interested in tracing back? I mean, that they were members way back. I mean, like the, the current rabbis maybe were. Some, some are. Uh, it's extremely difficult because, as you know, the Jewish people have been spread throughout the world. It is extremely difficult to really get accurate genealogical records. Some do. 
Um, and um, if your last name is Cohen, that's easy. Because yeah. Cohen is associated with the priesthood. You're going to be pretty certain. But a lot of others. Most Jews today... Most Jews today cannot really identify what tribe they are. They really don't. A few can, but it's, it's really difficult for them. Well, are we ready to start? Uh, yeah, Mark. That whole lineage was important because he said, I have uncircumcised lips, basically says that I am not of any authority since I did not grow up with the Jewish people. I grew up in the... Pharaoh house and stuff like that, and and all of that might be an answer of giving him the authority and the yeah, I think the so. Reality of who he is as a Jew, who is related to as the, as, the as a Kohathite, a, a Levite. Yes, yeah. I think that's part of it. Yeah. All right, now we're about to start the real demonstration of power by Yahweh through Moses and Aaron. And it's going to lead to the plagues. But there's an initial confrontation. Verse 28. Now when the Lord, uh, yes, now when the Lord spoke to Moses, he said to him, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother will be your prophet. Now they are similes. He is not saying, Moses, you're a god. That's not what he said. Like a god to Pharaoh, and Moses will be your prophet. This is summarizing what we'd read back in chapter 5 when Moses gave the five reasons why he's not deliverer. God said, I'm going to give you Aaron. Aaron will be your spokesman. It's just summarizing that. So all God's doing is just reviewing it, but he's using uh, figurative language. To Pharaoh, you're going to be like a god. Because the things that you will do because I will empower you to do them are going to be things that only deity can do. The plagues, etc. You are to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of this country. Now again, this is God has said this to him. This isn't the first time he said this. But he says again, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my division, my people, the Israelites. And the, this is really an important sentence. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. It's back to in answering Woody's question. There are two audiences for this. And audience number two is the Egyptians. And I will stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. May I tell you a story? This is really hard to prove this connection. You can't prove it historically. But after the Exodus, and the dynasty of which Amenhotep II, who is the pharaoh of the Exodus, his dynasty, his successor, not immediate, but the next, is a man named um, Amenhotep IV. He becomes Akhenaten. And Akhenaten tries to introduce monotheism into Egypt which is really interesting. Now, by the way, you know who he is because Akhenaten's son is King Tut. Tutankhamun? You ever heard of King Tut? That's his son. But Akhenaten tries to introduce a monotheistic religion into Egypt. And scholars have just scratched their head. Could there be a connection to the Exodus and what Akhenaten tried to do? 
Possibly, but you just can't prove it. Just can't prove it. It's just an interesting development in the history of ancient Egypt. And he, what he tries to institute in the cult he tries, he, he goes all the way down the Nile to a place called Armana. He relocates the capital. He builds new temples. I mean, it's really an amazing period. By the way, his wife is Nefertiti. Have you ever heard of her? That's yeah. his wife. So these are really important people in ancient Egyptian history. But it's really fascinating to make these connections between what was going on in the Exodus and in that very brief, because that didn't last very long, that very brief time when Akhenaten, he's called the heretic king, tried to introduce monotheism into Egypt. He didn't last very long. In all likelihood, he was assassinated. But there's just a lot of famous people. By the way, did you read about in King Tut's tomb, which they found in the early 20th century? They believe that there's another chamber in back of that, and that's where Nefertiti is buried. Now they're doing a lot of analysis of that to try because the Egyptian government will not allow them to break into that unless they're pretty convinced that something back of that. There's just really fascinating stuff going on right now in archaeology. So I don't know why I told you all that's just fascinating. All right, let's look at the uh, next verse. Moses and Aaron, verse 6, did just as the Lord commanded them. Now this is interesting. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83. Moses had spent 40 years in the best school of Egypt, 40 years in the Midian Desert, learning dependence on God. Now he's ready to confront Pharaoh. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff, throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So God is giving them clear instruction. This is what I want you to do. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh is Amenhotep II, and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. In other words, they threw their staff down and became a snake. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, we are given the names of these two Egyptian magicians, Janus and Yampre, J-A-N-N-E-S, and J-A-N-B-R-E-S. Giannis and Yambres. 2 Timothy 3.8, we know their name. And in 2 Thessalonians tells us they were empowered by Satan. So Satan's power explains the power of these Egyptian magicians or holy men, whatever you want to call them. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But notice this, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. What just happened? A demonstration of the superior power of the God whom, Ab whom Moses and Aaron serve. Just proved that. And so Pharaoh relents and says, I have accepted this as incontrovertible proof. Leave Egypt. What's the text say? Verse 13, Pharaoh's heart became hard. 
and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. The Lord had prepared Moses in there. He is going to harden his heart. And one of the things we'll see in the next couple of weeks, it's going to take us quite a while through all this, Pharaoh will harden his heart, Pharaoh will harden his heart, Pharaoh will harden his heart, and then the text will say, and God then hardened his heart. We'll talk about what happened, what that means, and so on. But there's a word here, man, that you might want to just think about in what just happened, and that's what's going to happen through all these plagues. It's a polemic. It's a polemic. God triumphing over these gods, quote-unquote, but also over Satan. All right. Plague number one. Can I, can I just say yeah, absolutely. Question? You know, a lot of people think that um, that power may not exist today, both on the side of God and side of Satan. Uh, what would your comment be in regard to that? Does uh, that those two powers still battle in different venues on earth? Absolutely. Absolutely. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following, which is what we call the whole armor passage. Paul says, we battle war not against flesh and blood, uh, but against the powers in the high places, the rulers, the dominions, all the ranks of the demonic power. Um, Yes, absolutely. There is a cosmic, spiritual, I hate to use it that way, but I don't have to put it, cosmic, spiritual battle going on in the heavenlies between the forces of God and the forces of Satan. Uh, in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel had been praying for tw- and fasting for 21 days, and finally an angel shows up with the answer to the prayer and said, I was delayed because I was battling the prince of Persia. And it was so severe, I had to call Mark, Michael, the archangel, to defeat. So you just get a sense that there is a spiritual battle going on, and Paul puts it in, his, in, his, uh, in Ephesians, in the heavenlies. And so that, that, continues to, that continues to ensue. It is manifested on earth at times in places extremely blatantly, like Haiti or the Dominican Republic, or much more subtly, in American civilization, in the sense that we are so sophisticated and so secular, we can't possibly believe there's spiritual warfare. But you see it in the ruined lives of people everywhere. That's where you see it. But we're so sophisticated, we don't want, and I, that's cynical in the way I'm saying it. Uh, if you've ever read, and this may or may not be something you're interested in, it's one of my son's favorite books, but uh, C.S. Lewis's little classic screw tape letters. It's a classic. It's, it's, a, it's a parable. But what he does in that is he has one of the chief demons teaching a young demon, neophyte, this is how we go about our strategy. And he said, the, when we're with the Western, I'm paraphrasing, when we're Western civilization where everybody's sophisticated and well-educated, our main task is to convince everybody Satan doesn't exist. But when we're in the poorer areas like in Haiti and Dominican Republic, then we manifest our power greatly because those people know absolutely Satan exists. And they're serving him and are scared of him. So all we want to do is scare them to be on our side. It's very shrewd what Lewis is doing there. 
Because Satan is not God. The demons that join Satan in the rebellion, one-third of the angels join Satan, they're not as powerful as God. They're not omniscient. They can't read your mind. But they're students of you. They watch your patterns. They watch your habits. They see your vulnerabilities. They see your weaknesses. And that's when the temptation hits. Their primary weapon is the weapon of temptation. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, put on every day the whole armor of God. Moses and Aaron had on the whole armor of God when they're doing battle with, because they're doing battle with Satan. And that's, it's, it's a reality that is very difficult in sophisticated, well-educated American and all of Western civilization. Uh, the screw tape letters. It's it's a it's a thin little paperback. It's been in print forever, but it's just it's a parable. You have to read it, but it is a it's very insightful because what Lewis is doing is taking what the scriptures teach and putting it into this clever, cleverly uh, fleshed out story, uh, and it's really really good. I, I, I've, I've thought. It's there is an audio version of that book. It's a oh, is that right? And I can't tell you who reads it right now, but wonderful. Oh, is that right? Okay. The inflections, the oh, spirit sure. that yeah. uh, Lewis is trying to Yeah, that's good. I didn't know that. A lot of this you can pick up, too, at uh, Parables, you know, if you just, you know, rather than going through the internet, if you just want to get something. Like yeah. Verse 14, the first plague. This is number one. It is in July or August. This is the time of year. And you're saying, how do you know that? Because of what it says about the Nile. We're in July or August. July or August. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. Many, not all, but many of the plagues, God's direction is go in the morning. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. And say to him, the Lord, now remember this is Yahweh, the Elohim of the Hebrews. That's how it would be in Hebrew. Has sent me to say to you, let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. That is very important. This is revelatory. This plague is to teach truth. It is to cause Pharaoh and the Egyptians to reach a propositional truth claim statement. What is that propositional truth claim statement? That the God of the Hebrews is the Yahweh of the universe. <coughs> That's what they're to conclude. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood the fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs. They will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Please note how comprehensive this plague is. And it takes you to this point. 
Nile River is the celestial stream of Egypt. It was the key to their life. Everything about their life centered on the Nile. There was nothing that was a part of their, their life that was in one way or another not attached to the Nile. And so what's God doing? The very first thing God does is he strikes the Nile. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials, struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed to blood. The fish in the sea died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. And Pharaoh and his administrative minions relented and let the people go. Verse 22, first word, but. The Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret art. <coughs> Where did that water come from? Looks at the end of verse 24. They dug along the Nile to get drinking water. They're digging like wells. They're trying to get other sources of water because everything. So these Egyptian magicians do the same thing. They're mimicking what God did. Does Satan have the power to mimic what God does? Yes. He studied the book of Revelation. It speaks of Antichrist. He's called the beast in Revelation 13. The beast and the false prophet. It says of them, they will do signs and wonders just like the apostles did. So can Satan mimic what God does? Yes, and that's what he's doing. But they couldn't reverse this. That's right. That's right. Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not, e and did not take even this to heart. And it says what the Egyptians do, to, and this is the water that presumably these magicians are able to turn into blood. So, I mean, this is, uh, this is really amazing. This is an absolutely amazing, staggering thing to see. The Nile is touched by God Almighty, but Satan mimics the same kind of power. Is it any wonder that Pharaoh hardens his heart? This is horrible. It's a terrible thing to happen to my country. But what you petty guys are doing is what my guys can do too. So why in the world would I let you go? You're not doing anything they can't do. And that's, that's where we're at. You, you just think, this is incredible. You would think he would say... Go! No. It's got to get far, 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 far worse for Pharaoh to even think about letting them go. Is that, is that similar to maybe uh, they say that maybe sharing Christ with someone <clears throat> takes seven times or seven exposures for them because they, yeah. the first time they go, you know, yeah, it's a nice story. And then maybe another person comes and and then they think, what is this? And then they maybe get more inclined to hearing that, and they think maybe there's something substantive there because of what's happening. Yep. And people keep sharing this with them. 
Maybe yeah. it isn't coincidence. I, I think that's an example of the same kind of the same kind of thing for us in our life. Let me share with you something one of my mentors said back in Pennsylvania. And I've never, I've never forgot it. I wish I could tell you I've consistently always applied it to my life, but I haven't. He said, he, he had said a number of things when I was ordained, but one, another one of the things he said to me is, Jim, God is calling you to be faithful. Leave the results to him. That, that's, that's a very liberating thought. Because where Moses and Aaron are at this point, you would think, my goodness, if we can turn the lifeblood, the celestial stream of Egypt into blood, certainly they're going to let us go. No. God had said he's going to harden his heart. It's going to, I am going to have to do incredibly mighty acts. Trust the results to me, Moses and Aaron. And so when you're witnessing, you're sharing Christ, or whatever you're doing in the name of the Lord, trust the results to him. Because uh, in a very real sense, we are not in control of the results. And especially when we're talking here about the spiritual things, that's what we're discussing. That's a very freeing thought for me. It really is. I think it is for all of us. Now, let's introduce, we're almost out of time, but let's introduce the next section. It starts in verse 25. <clears throat> Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Okay, now that's an important time marker. It's a week later. So we're still in August, still at this same time of the year. And the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what Yahweh says, let my people go, that they may worship me. If you feast to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. In your note packet on page six, I gave you a little chart of the ten plagues. And there's actually, um, I think there's another chart too, there is another chart over on page 7 that also gives additional detail because the value of the chart on page 7 this gets a little cumbersome but it, it tries to identify all of the different gods associated with each plague that are being attacked follow me? and you, that may be too much information you don't care but we know a great deal about the Egyptian worldview. We know a great deal about the Egyptian pantheon of gods because they're, they're in all of their temples and everything, many of which we can go visit and so on. So we know a great deal about their worldview. And what these charts do is help you to itemize. This is what God is attacking, this particular segment of their worldview. And so that both of those charts may or may not, if you really want to study this, but that's why I gave them to you, because each one of them has significant theological meaning to the Egyptian worldview. And that's what God is, I like to put it this way when I preach this, God is dismantling stone by stone by stone the Egyptian worldview. That's what he's doing. He's dismantling. And so the frogs, and I don't know about you, but frogs are not my favorite animal that God's ever created. They will come up into your palace, into your bedroom, onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and your kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Come back next week and we'll see what happens. Okay? <clears throat> Let me pray. Let's pray for Fred on his trip that his wife is taking him, and he is really not looking forward to it. 
That's not true. It's a very important time for him, both physically and with his wife and so on. Lord, we pray for Fred. Be with him as uh, he and his wife go on this trip for a couple of weeks, about four weeks or so, uh, as, as they travel, as they're together. Um, may it be a time of rest for him, some relaxation, some refreshment and renewal, both physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, we all need that every now and then. I just pray for him to that end. Pray for the rest of us and uh, what we're learning here in this, in one sense, very familiar part of your word, but in another sense, how important it is to really understand in a comprehensive way what is really going on here. Or this is a polemic. You are dismantling an entire worldview here, step by step, stone by stone. And you are proving, as you did in history to the Egyptians, that you are Yahweh, the one true only God. You are proving to the Israelites that you are their God, the true creator and sovereign Lord of the universe. And for us, as we read it 3,500 years later, it reminds us of who you are. You're not just a fair-weather friend that we every now and then tip our hat to. You are the Lord of the universe. You have immense power. And the power that you can exercise for us most meaningfully is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, which is the linchpin of our faith. Because Jesus lives, we will live forever as well. When we place our faith in him, we become your children by faith in Christ. We are justified, and our destiny is to spend eternity with you. That kind of power which you demonstrated in Egypt is the power that raised Christ from the dead and is the power that will vanquish all evil and forever destroy Satan. And our rule and reign with you in eternity is where we're headed. Uh, help us to have hope. Help us to trust you because of that and to rely on depending on you each day. So dismiss us with your blessing and help us in all we do and say to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.